So uh, there's a there's a story I like to tell that I heard from another biomechanist. So I so I've never actually looked at the data to prove that this is true, but I think it's a really still a good story. When you look at a cat and a squirrel, both of them are excellent at climbing up trees, right? But you never have to call the fire department to get a squirrel out of a tree. So what is it about them that makes a, a cat have a more difficult time getting down a tree? And what I was, uh, how it was described to me is that squirrels have the ability to turn their back paws around as they go down the tree, right? And so it's only through a comparative, and whereas cats lack that capability, and so it's more difficult for them to go down the tree. So it's only through a comparison of multiple organisms there that you might be able to get some design tricks that could help you improve a, a robot that can climb in a what's called a scansorial or vertical, you know, climbing environment. Because I think the problems of closing sens sensory loops to motor output to achieve locomotion in the physical world where we're subjected to F equals MA has to be a fairly ubiquitous problem. And there may be differences, like sometimes between the cat and the squirrel, we see differences in their leg morphology. We might see differences in active sensing strategies, or we might see you know differences between these different organisms. But by and large, they're gonna be solving a really similar set of sensory motor control problems. And so I love, I feel like a kid in a candy store working with so many brilliant neuroscientists that are all experts in these different animal models and then trying to bring to bear a common set of control theory tools to help understand uh, uh, all those organisms. So we both look for common principles, but also specializations that make a specific organism really good at something that could be both um, intellectually interesting in the study of biology, but also ripe for translation into engineering. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. It's interesting when I looked at your profile, you did uh, electric engineering and then you moved to integrative biology with Robert Fall. Why did you choose to do that? What is the motivation behind that? I've always been interested in how things move. I would actually, you know, one answer I might give to your first question is that, uh, you know, am I an engineer or a neuroscientist? No, really at heart, I'm a juggler. So I got my start as a young man in, in middle school and high school uh, juggling, and I did it at, you know, made, um, I guess, a little bit of a small career of it. While I was in high school, I competed nationally, uh, and I really loved both the process of um, juggling, but also really trying to understand and think about how me and my juggling partners were going about the process of, of juggling. And so when I went and I did my bachelor's degree, I focused on control theory. And at the end of that, when I applied to do a PhD, I found this lab 
that actually had built the world's best juggling robot. And I thought that's actually something that you can do. You can use control engineering to try to understand how to synthesize a robotic juggler. And so um, that interest in control of movement practically as a juggler toward control synthesis of movement as a, a robotics engineer, as a PhD student, um, kind of ended up naturally giving way to an interest in biology that serendipitously was um, inspired even more by a collaborator of my PhD advisors, Bob Full, who's an integrative biologist at UC Berkeley. And he came and gave a talk at the University of Michigan where I was a PhD student. And I was just blown away by the way he was able to analyze biological systems using much of the same engineering jargon and engineering analysis that that I had been using, but from a synthetic point of view, you know, so the sort of the analysis of an existing system, which what, what scientists do, examining that which is, and then there's the synthetic side of trying to build something new. But I hadn't realized that you could use many of the same sort of mathematical and engineering tools and insights to, to do kind of reverse engineering, if you will, of biology. And so when I saw him gave that, give that talk, I said, gee, I don't know if you want an engineer in your lab, but I would love to come do a postdoc uh, and study and try to figure out how you, how you do this. And so that's kind of how that got started, a kind of budding interest in biology, but then got, it got amplified by seeing such an inspiring talk by my, what turned out to be my ultimate PhD advisor, postdoc advisor. In that case, what kind of questions uh, maybe are not answered between integrative biology and robotics? Maybe very uh, interesting questions maybe not answered yet. Well, you know, most people, when they think what are the hot biological questions, I think, think about things like genetics and molecular and cellular biology and, and medicine and so forth at really a small scale. And I do think that's really exciting. But um, as a robotics engineer, I'm fascinated by the integration of the whole organism and how it's able to achieve tasks kind of at the same scale that we might try to design engineering systems to do so. So to me, the really exciting, I mean, there's really exciting questions at all these scales, but but to me, the questions that really you know make me want to get up in the morning uh, are at the scale of how a whole organism brings to bear its sensors, its actuators, and its control system uh, in order to solve the amazing problems that we as control engineers have fallen so short of by comparison to the biological analogs. So, um, so within that framework of thinking about, you know, the whole organism and integrative and maybe integrative and comparative biology, the exciting questions uh, there, I think, um, to me, the things that like I say that make me want to get up in the morning are really uh, trying to understand the control. You know, the nervous system is, I think, probably the most exquisite control system in the universe, uh, at least in the universe that we know. And um, I'm on a team of, of control engineers uh, for a large uh, research grant, and these are like world experts in control theory. And as brilliant as they are, it's clear that they have a very different point of view, and the control field in general has a very different point of view puts us in a position that makes it hard to describe what it is that animals are doing that makes them do things better than we know how to build as control engineers. And so the re one of the reasons I'm really excited by that, by that collaboration is because they're curious and trying to understand. In fact, they reached out to me after I had written a review paper on neuroscience as an inspiration for control challenges. They called me up and said, 
gee, we'd really like to have you be part of this team. We're about to submit, submit a MURI. Will you, will you join us? And I thought that's really interesting because usually I collaborate with neuroscientists about control theory. And here control theorists were saying there's this whole world of how biology solves control problems that we might be able to draw uh, inspiration from. So while I think it's the most incredible control system in the known universe, and control engineers have been solving controls problems for, you know, about 100 years, right? We really have no idea how the nervous system does it. We don't know what the algorithms are. We don't know how to formalize them. Um, and when we do, we usually try to figure out cases where our existing control theory is a good explanation for what the biology is doing. But there's so many behaviors that the animal's doing that we don't even know what tools we would use to describe it. So if I can give just one example, control engineers typically design. So, um, so I guess I should give a little bit of background to the broad to a broad audience about what really control engineering is, right? So control engineering is the mapping of sensor information through some sort of process back out into the physical world. Typically, that action then creates a change in the sensory input and creates a closed feedback loop. And so for many, many different types of mechanical, electrical, and chemical, and other types of systems, we have really good engineering tools for designing uh, feedback controllers. Animals, on the other hand, seem to solve the problems with different kinds of sensors than we tend to build in engineering, and they seem to organize the way they control their movements and their actions in a way that's different than we tend to do as control engineers. My favorite example of that is that biology, neuroscience, um, I guess animals in general tend to move actively in the world in order to gain sensory information. And then they can use that sensory information for control. So for example, if I want to know the weight of this glass of water that I have still my leftover dishes from Christmas, um, if I want to measure its weight, I'll move my hand up and down in an active way to gauge its weight. If I want to measure its texture, I'll move my hand back and forth over the surface. If I want to see if it's hot or cold, I'll hold my hand on it for a minute. And each way that I do this, I engage my sensory system differently uh, in order to um, uh, uh, gain that sensory information uh, that I need for control. Engineers tend to deploy their sensors in such a way that they passively gain that sensory information interpret it for control, and then close a feedback loop because there's a complication when you're trying to do a task and gain sensory information. It's kind of complicated. It's called active sensing, and, and engineers don't typically do it that way. And in fact, there's a, there's a design principle called the separation principle that says that for some systems, you actually don't need to go out and actively sense. And that, but that only works for a small class of systems, but control engineers apply it to a much broader class than it's actually proven to work for. It works okay for the broader class, but it doesn't seem to work as well as the biological system. So active sensing, I think, is a really uh, important area for control engineers in particular to, to investigate in biology. That's, that's interesting. You mentioned sensing, and I, I want to ask you when we look to the animal kingdom, how, how the brain and the body and sensing play together. Um, for example, we had an episode uh, with uh, Stephen Pronton there, and he mentioned an example of the eagle and how they do use a whole degree of freedom to catch a prey. And that's fascinating, how you can reduce the sensing and uh, less degree of freedom to, ha to have this kind of effective sensing. 
So I want to ask you what may be missing here uh, to design such system with less computation and effective sensing here. Well, your point is well taken that the you know the nervous system might be an exquisite controller, but it's not. It, it didn't evolve independently of the body that it controls. Both the body and the brain are exquisitely evolved in in, mo in all organisms. They're exquisitely evolved systems that um, really work together, and it's through a conversation of the nervous system and the body that it controls that things like locomotion uh, emerge. So it's not that the, the nervous system tells the body what to do. It's really a conversation plays out between the nervous system and the body to, to, to do these tasks. And, and so many times when we look at um, biological systems, we see, for example, that the feet are designed to conform to an environment in a certain way because of flexibility in the, um, in the, both the materials as well as the linkages between the joints and so forth. So both not necessarily traditional soft materials, but even rigid linked uh, exoskeleton type insects have a lot of compliance in their joints, for example. And um, that interplay between really well-designed mechanics and adaptive feedback control, um, uh, you really have to study both. And so why would I be doing neuroscience in a mechanical engineering department, even though all my degrees are in electrical engineer and I'm really a juggler, is because I think you really have to start with F equals MA. You have to start with the mechanics of the system. If you, I think in order to understand control, you've got to understand the problem that the controller is faced with. And the problem that the controller is faced with has to do with the task, but it also has to do with the mechanical system that it's controlling. So you can't really ask the question of, what does the controller do if you don't know the um, mechanical system that it's interfacing with? But even more to the point, it's not one driving the other, it's the two working together to mm -hmm. solve the problem. Locomotion, it's interesting. For example, uh, we had an episode with uh, Jennifer Masser, and we were discussing uh, my Octopus uh, Teacher movie. And uh, she mentioned that uh, the locomotion is very interesting in the octopus. For example, when they have the eight tentacles, so how they can make a decision to, for example, to walk. And she was mentioning that in the horse, maybe it's much easier. They have four legs, so they can't make the decision. It's, maybe it's understood how it happened, but in octopus, how they can make a decision to walk and that's something she mentioned is still not very well understood how the decision is taken. So I want to ask you, when you look to these different species, well, what are the interesting locomotion, uh, maybe behavior or, yeah, if, if you can tell us more about that, what's interesting across these species to achieve locomotion? Well, I think the... Um the thing that comes vividly to mind when thinking about an octopus and I, you know, I'm, I'll tell you right up front, I know very little about the physiology and, and neuroscience of octopuses in particular, but certainly one thing that's sort of, um, vividly, you get, it gets conjured up in your imagination when, an, when an octopus or flexible bodied organism of any kind is interacting with the environment, that it's going to be receiving massive distributed sensory information across its entire uh, body surface as it's doing this kind of of movement. And so one thing is that, you know, engineers tend to build expensive, modular, individual 
sensory systems that are kind of isolated from the body mechanics, uh, whether it's a camera that you plop on the front or a laser rangefinder or encoders that you put in the joint that are all discrete, expensive, um, uh, and not distributed sensors. Whereas I think one of the great challenges, and I think something that we can draw inspiration across basically the entire animal kingdom, is that animals are incredibly sensor-rich. They have uh, distributed sensory systems over their whole body, but but probably, and this is just a hunch, I don't have, I can't back this up with, you know, um, solid empirical evidence, but I have a hunch that most of those sensors are far sloppier and uh, less accurate than the engineered sensors that we can make um, industrially. But nevertheless, they seem to be sufficient to facilitate sensory motor control behaviors that are better than we know how to engineer. So I think the idea of, of building more ubiquitous sensing that's more fully integrated into the robotic platform uh, would be one of the things that I think would be, um, you know, but we have to have a design synthesis for how to do that. It's not enough to say, oh, animals have sensors all over the body, so let me put sensors all over the body of a robot. Well, what are the principles for that? How, what should the um, uh, filtering properties of those sensors be? How should they be distributed? Um, what type of sensory integration algorithms do I need to put on them? So it's, we have to be a little bit careful to say, well, because biology does it, I should just translate that to engineering. What we lack is really a, a language for how to do that. We don't know why that's a good idea. I just have a strong hunch that it's a good idea. Uh, and one of the enabling capabilities of animals that would be useful to understand to try to translate to robotics. If we dig deep in understanding locomotion, I'm curious how animals can adapt to different uh, environment with their morphology. For example, when we look into um, when you look to certain locomotion mechanism, what is the most significant part of the animal to get inspiration and the mechanical description to understand what's actually happening here? What is the most significant part? You should start with to understand the locomotion here. That's a really Really good question. So uh, I think sometimes it's it's something specific about an individual animal that's worth learning from. So uh, there's a there's a story I like to tell that I heard from another biomechanist. So I so I've never actually looked at the data to prove that this is true, but I think it's a really still a good story. When you look at a cat and a squirrel, both of them are excellent at climbing up trees, right? But you never have to call the fire department to get a squirrel out of a tree. So what is it about them that makes a, a cat have a more difficult time getting down a tree? And what I was, uh, how it was described to me is that squirrels have the ability to turn their back paws around as they go down the tree, right? And so it's only through a comparative, and whereas cats lack that capability, and so it's more difficult for them to go down the tree. So it's only through a comparison of multiple organisms there that you might be able to get some design tricks that could help you improve a, a robot that can climb in a what's called a scansorial or vertical, you know, climbing environment. So um, I don't know if there's one organism or one sensory system uh, that would give us all of the the rules that we would want to know. It's really that nature has found solutions to a, that have allowed animals to adapt to a wide variety of ecological niches that can give us ideas for a whole range of, of uh, solutions that we might be able to use for an engineering specific task. I mean, 
the 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 evolution evolution doesn't work by trying to design something to solve a certain problem, but ev evolution has given rise to organisms that are very effective at living in certain types of environments. And now, as as engineers, not just control engineers, but as robotics engineers, soft robotics engineers, control engineers, we can pick and choose the solutions that are most appropriate to help us solve an engineering task uh, at hand. And so. Um, that all being said, I think there are common principles that can be learned. And one of the reasons that I like to study, use control theory and to study, we study cockroaches and rats and humans and hawk moths and weekly electric fish, uh, a wide bats, a wide range of organisms that we look at. Because I think the problems of closing sens sensory loops to motor output to achieve locomotion in the physical world where we're subjected to F equals MA has to be a fairly ubiquitous problem. And there may be differences, like sometimes between the cat and the squirrel, we see differences in their leg morphology. We might see differences in active sensing strategies, or we might see you know differences between these different organisms. But by and large, they're gonna be solving a really similar set of sensory motor control problems. And so I love, I feel like a kid in a candy store working with so many brilliant neuroscientists that are all experts in these different animal models and then trying to bring to bear a common set of control theory tools to help understand uh, uh, all those organisms. So we both look for common principles, but also specializations that make a specific organism really good at something that could be both um, intellectually interesting in the study of biology, but also ripe for translation into engineering. That's an excellent example. Since uh, we can see that certain creatures exhibit intelligence through their bodies. For example, I, I really like this example of the dead fish swimming upstream. And it's example how we can couple the geometric and material nonlinearities to get this interesting behavior. And, uh, and I want to skew in that case when we look at this example, uh, how we can achieve that. Uh, what may be the... the the lessons we can take so that we can really weave in this uh, body morphology and minimize the external controller and sensing here? I think it's really consistent with um, a, a, a view that I've held for a long time, that not, not that it was my view, that I, but I, that I've grown to really appreciate for a long time, which is exactly this idea that, you know, the nervous system really just interacts with the biomechanical system to do certain behaviors but you know you can't you can't make a a Volkswagen drive like a Ferrari right you have to have the mechanical system tuned well for the tasks and the ecological niche and so forth that the that the animal has um uh evolved uh and filled that niche so the uh, there's a another classic example that's not too far off that you might be familiar with the passive dynamic walkers um, that can basically, you can make basically robot-like kinematic systems that look like a humanoid that can walk down an incline with absolutely no batteries, no wires, no computers, no nothing, and they look like they're naturally walking down, down the street. They get their power from gravity because they're walking on a slight incline, but they're passively stable. Even though they're bipeds, if you stop them at any position, they will fall over but they're passively stable due to the dynamic interaction with the environment. And so and when you look at a human walker, it has many of the many similar kinematic features to those passive dynamic walkers, suggesting that 
our biomechanics are actually tuned to at least make the control problem that the nervous system is faced with easier. It's not to say that we don't use our nervous systems. We, we use it all the time. If I didn't, you have a nervous system, I would have fallen over at the beginning of this um, podcast. But the the nervous system is interacting with what control engineers call the plant or the physical system that is really well adapted to the tasks that it's trying to solve. And that's a, and that fish swimming upstream. Of course, a dead fish with the right initial conditions and the right flow and the right everything else can exhibit upstream swimming, but without a nervous system, eventually it's going to get caught and run down the river. So it's the it's the interplay between a system that would naturally help it swim upstream because it's a good mechanical system, and then a, a nervous system that makes whatever modifications it needs to make to that passive dynamic system to cause it to do that behavior well. So it's that interplay, that conversation that's really important. Do you, do you think if we include control theory here, well, maybe the question, what is the point of designing such system with less sensing and less computation? There's two ways here to think about it. The sensing to as feedback, and also the other way that reduces the sensing and reduces computation. So do you think it makes sense here to reverse engineer uh, what's actually happening? For example, the eagle, they don't use this old group freedoms to catch the prey, for example. Well, let's keep in mind that the only task that the fish needs to solve is not swimming upstream. That might be a really important one, and so it needs a good body that's well-tuned for solving that task, but the fish has to um, look for food, it has to avoid predators, it has to do many other things that require a sensory-rich uh, capability, uh, or it wouldn't survive you know, the gauntlet of other organisms that are endowed with those features of sensory motor control. So um, I think that it's really useful for understanding um, to, to understand the full organism, it's really useful to understand the form-function relationships of the body itself in isolation of the nervous system, like that fish study shows. But no biomechanical solution is going to solve the full range of problems that an intelligent agent with a flexible adaptive computer in its head or in its body for a distributed nervous system uh, can solve. So I think that um, we don't want to go too far down that road of assuming that we can put all the intelligence in the bone part of the bone body continuum, right? There has to be, it, dep it, you know, it depends on the task we're trying to solve. There's plenty of mechanical tasks that we can solve with gadgets that don't require computers. Um, and there's specific tasks in the physical world that a particular biological organism might be able to solve, but they have to mate, they have to feed, they have to avoid predators, they have to sleep, you know, find shelter, avoid being, uh, getting too cold, too hot. There's all these other things that the organism needs to do in order to pass on its, its um, genetic code to the next generation that aren't just swimming up the stream. I'm curious if there's any uh, exotic examples of uh, locomotion in the species you have come across and you ask yourself how this mechanism works. It's maybe it doesn't make sense. It was really exotic. Yeah, so um, I mean, I'll just talk about one exquisite form of locomotion that we've been studying in my lab over the last ten or fifteen years, which is um, we study a species of fish called weakly electric knife fish, and this all started again serendipitously because my then next door neighbor Eric Fortune um, 
was out in his yard mowing his yard and I went and introduced myself and discovered that he was a fish neuroscientist. And a few weeks later, I went to his lab and um, visited his lab and uh, believe it or not, in that first four hours of visiting his lab, he and I collected pilot data for our first grant together. Complete serendipity. It was just like a like a match made in heaven in terms of our different approaches to thinking about biology and, 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 and engineering. So that fish that he got me so intrigued with has an incredible morphology where they're they're if you look at them from the bottom, they're long slender fish and they have a, a long fin on the underside on the belly side of the fish that generates these two inward counterpropagating waves and it does it all the time even when it's sitting still and if the fish wants to swim say that way it will recruit more of the fin to go one direction creating an imbalance between the force generated by this small part and the force generated by this long part and begin to swim forward and it can just shift back and forth how much of the fin is going one way versus the other in order to adjust its fore aft movement um, which gives it really precise control over its position and also allows it to kind of dodge the stability maneuverability trade-off because it turns out that when you have two waves going toward each other in the fluid it creates a damping like force that makes you very stable but you can if since you can trim the amount of fin that's going forward versus the amount that's going backward the fish is able to get great maneuverability as well so um that really elegant morphological adaptation really simplifies the control problem allows you to sidestep the stability maneuverability trade-off um, and then from a control engineering point of view is also wonderful because the fish ha does these behaviors where if we move an object back and forth, they will swim back and forth to track it. So we can begin to understand the feedback control in a laboratory setting because of those adaptations. So not only is it just cool from a biological point of view, it's an engineer's um, perfect organism for figuring out control systems. Uh, I saw that the sensing in the electric fish, they produce one volt uh, to sense the environment and they didn't use it for a prey. How, how they can do that? Yeah, so they they are um, amazing organisms. They have a large electric organ. So they're you know in the laboratory maybe the fish vary from say this big to this big, and uh, they have a large electric organ in their tail, and that electric organ uh, actually the the process of electrogenesis is an interesting um, area of research in its own right. And I'm not an expert in it, but there's a collaborator and colleague of mine in the mechanical engineering department at Johns Hopkins uh, that's that's gotten very interested in electrogenesis. And he studies electric eels, for example. But uh, And it's the same mechanism that electric eels use to generate electricity. They just do it at a much smaller voltage, as you mentioned, a few millivolts. So in their tail, they are generating this oscillating electric field. And that creates current that flows out of the tail and back into receptors all over the surface of the body. Those receptors are just little voltage sensors. And it might seem surprising that you could have like a voltmeter on a fish, but since electricity is the currency of information in the nervous system, it's not so surprising that you could build a sensor that could actually pick up a voltage difference between the outside water and the inside of the fish. And so all over the surface of the fish, there are these electroreceptors. And, um, you know, like our eyes have a fovea where there's more photoreceptors in the center of our eye. The electric fish have an electrosensory fovea where there's more electroreceptors near their head, which makes sense because that's where they're going to, for example, eat their prey is with their mouth. Um, but they have them distributed over their whole body. So um, 
So as an object comes nearby the surface of the fish, it will have a different conductivity typically than the surrounding water. And as a result, that will distort the electric field, creating a different voltage on the surface of the skin than would have been there if that object wasn't there. And the voltage receptors can detect that and say, aha, lunch, um, if it's a little prey item. Or, uh-oh, somebody's about to eat me and take off if it's not a prey item. And they can discriminate size of objects and, and so forth. They're really quite, quite remarkable. Do you think there's any other interesting species that maybe we still need to understand or maybe neglected when it comes to studies or get inspiration from? So is there a, an organism that is, I mean, there's just so many. I, I just got back from the annual Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology meeting. It was in um, Phoenix, Arizona this year, and I braved the Omicron and, and uh, masked up and went. And luckily, I seem to have avoided Omicron. But um but I'm so glad that I went because it re it reminded me why I like that community so much because hundreds and hundreds of different species of animal are studied there and they all hold remarkable secrets. So while I think it's really important to look at an extremely broad diversity of organisms to try to understand you know, the wide range of solutions that nature has to offer, I would think the single organism that I could point to that can get people most excited, at least kind of like on a common everyday household basis, uh, is the squirrel. Squirrels perform feats of agility that are mind-boggling. And, you know, many of us can walk outside our own backyard and in, into our own backyards and watch these organisms uh, you know, climb up a tree and jump over to a telephone wire and, and uh, perform acrobatic maneuvers that a roboticist can only dream one day of being able to make uh, artificial systems capable of. Um, so, I, so, you know, uh, they really embody this interplay between uh, sensory motor control and biomechanics that has been, you know, basically my life pursuit as an academic. Um, and, you know, actually, I'm really, really fortunate to take that kind of everyday household interest uh, to the laboratory. My, uh, I'm part of a, a large uh, research consortium between um, uh, several universities, including, I mentioned, my former postdoc advisor, Bob Full. So we're collaborating with him, my former PhD advisor, Dan Kodacek, um, several other researchers on the team that are all uh, remarkable. And then here at Hopkins, I'm working with a renowned neuroscientist, Jim Kinnearum, uh, looking at the neural basis that might underlie some of these um, incredible feats of agility. So we're looking at, the, um, uh, at rats, uh, because rats are a model system for uh, understanding cognition and learning and memory. And um, by comparing their biomechanical performance, which is, by the way, you know, nothing to sneeze at. They're amazingly, they're amazingly agile creatures. Um, but then comparing their performance while trying to get an understanding of the neural basis of their decision making, while, while say, deciding between you know, jumping over a ditch or climbing down into a ditch, both of which are extremely uh, challenging, and the animal has to make a split-second decision about uh, which one uh, uh, they need to do, um, and then comparing that to the incredible performance extremes exhibited by squirrels that the Berkeley group is studying gives us a unique lens into uh, that kind of natural intelligence, and in collaboration with the group at Penn, uh, trying to translate that into robotic practice has been uh, a really exciting project. 
I want to ask you about the redundancy or resilience when it comes to damage or failure in locomotion in certain species. For example, we had an episode about spider and how they build a web. And for example, if they lose two of their legs, they still manage to build a web. And I want to ask you maybe what do you notice when there's damage or failure in the locomotion? What's maybe interesting uh, features or behavior do you think you've, you noticed in certain species when it comes to resilience or redundancy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. I would say something that we, uh, as a field, know little about um, in terms of, I mean, you know, it's it, one of the reasons it becomes hard is because of the multifunctionality of limbs in nature. And so you might take off a limb or find a, you know, a, a cockroach with a missing limb and it lo seems to locomote just fine. So you wonder, you know, why did it have six limbs? Was it just for that resiliency or are there other um, tasks that would be more beneficial to have more or fewer legs. Um, uh, but that sort of redundancy and resiliency uh, certainly seems to be a common theme uh, in, in nature. Um, the ability to adapt to such damage can also be really interesting. I saw a really interesting talk actually at the SICB meeting that I just mentioned where they looked at, you know, one of the problems with honeybees when they go to feed from a flower, and this is a really important type of system to study for ecological reasons, because we're trying to understand the waning honeybee populations, for example, but as a honeybee is feeding from a flower, it would have the uh, possibility, or say a hawk moth, any animal that's a pollinator feeding from a flower would have the tendency for their wings to occasionally strike the flower, and at those high flapping frequencies, that can create damage. So how do they, on the fly, adapt to missing the distal third of their wing if they have a sudden collision that they weren't expecting they if they and they don't fall out of the air they seem to be able to adapt to those very large mechanical perturbations really really rapidly uh, and i saw an interesting talk that suggested that's an, a rapid adaptive neural control pro, um, problem that the nervous system is solving in that case so that ability to sort of pick up on the fly with an unexpected perturbation that's so large is again something that engineers aren't particularly uh, aren't, I would say aren't as good at yet uh, as biological organisms seem to be. I want to ask you, what does it take for robotics from robotic side uh, to achieve what you mentioned already from integrative biology? What do you think may be the direction that we should go for or maybe we should pay more attention to this direction so that we can achieve, for example, active sensing and uh, the way the sensors work in animal kingdom for locomotion? Yeah. I mean, if I knew, then um, I'd already have my Nobel Prize. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, joking aside, I think, uh, you know, I'm biased because I'm a maybe maybe I'm biased because I'm a control engineer or maybe my bias has maybe become a control engineer. I'm not quite sure. But um, I really think that the ability to execute a wide range of motor behaviors requires a better understanding. And, and I think that's one of the things that really makes biological systems stand apart from their engineered analogs is the incredible multifunctionality of biological systems. The robustness and resilience, as you mentioned, being able to deal with really large variations in, in system dynamics from unexpected perturbations, um, as well as the ability to tackle a wide range of tasks. I have to think that that a substantial part of the missing puzzle is understanding 
how they connect myriad sensors from multiple different sensory modalities, many of which are distributed over the entire organism, you know, touch, thermal sensing, and so forth are distributed over the whole body. Um, uh, and then we have all the other sensors that are more like what we recognize as standard engineering sensors like accelerometers. Well, maybe those are like our vestibular system and we have visual systems. Maybe that's like a camera. We know how to build these discrete isolated sensors really well, but the more distributed sloppy sensors that are over the whole body and then how to integrate all that in a meaningful way to facilitate um, closed loop control of such a wide repertoire of behaviors is is really, uh, I think, a, uh, a grand challenge of, of both neuroscience and then translation to engineering. There's some beautiful work, for example, uh, at University of Washington, among other places, on uh, understanding how to why sensors are distributed in the way they are, for example, on the wings of, of insects. Um, and I think that kind of work that's really trying to get at the design principles or the evolutionary um, design principles, I don't want to call them design principles because nobody's designed the wings, but the, but the design principles that we can gain to go to engineering of what makes a, a, a particular distribution of sensors so effective. Instead of just trying to copy that distribution, what is it about the problem they're solving that made that sensor distribution an effective choice? I think the work that's looking at that is is uh, really exciting and, and the kind of thing that can um, give us insights for engineering. Actually, I find this part very interesting when it comes to the sensor distribution and how the morphology and architecture or distribution is very crucial. And one of the examples I really find interesting, um, how using different materials and a different morphology and architecture can give us very interesting behavior. And I want to mention briefly the uh, example of the Arubima fish uh, in Amazon, and they have this kind of multi-material, um, and uh, they regarded one of the most flexible and tough biological material. And because of this arrangement of this classing material and the way of the morphology uh, of this uh, structure, and also the way they presented um, the piranha fish cannot eat this uh, arubima fish. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a lesson that from the biology or evolution that how morphology and architecture with material can give us very interesting phenomena, very interesting behavior. So when it comes to sensing distribution, why do you think certain animal or creature have this the way they distribute the sensor. And one of the examples also is a spider. They have this spider web, especially the orbit one. If there's damage happening in the part of the web, they still uh, still don't, don't fail, doesn't fail, doesn't fail. So I think that's also interesting example. Why do you think the sensor distribution in, in animal kingdom when it comes to different species? I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know why sensors are distributed in general the way they are, um, but I would say that it's it's more than just the sensor distribution. There's also the sensory dynamics, and I think that's a really important combination to understand. So uh, a really cool experiment that anybody can do is they can go online and look up something called perceptual fading, and there's pretty neat optical illusions that you can find on the internet where you simply stare at a particular point on an image, or and it can even be a, there's one that's a changing image. Um, and as you stare at that point, 
the entire image fades away from your periphery, suggesting that your sensory system and your perceptual system fades out things that aren't changing. And it's why you can't feel your shirt right now as you're wearing it, because your body gets used to that that consistent, persistent sensory signal. Or if you put your hand in a in a bucket of cold water after a minute or so, you don't notice that it feels cold anymore. Our sensor systems tend to adapt to persistent stimuli that are there for a long time. One of my favorite examples is you probably had the um, experience of being in a space where there's an HVAC system running for a long period of time. And then when it goes away, it's suddenly, you didn't even notice that it was there, but when the HVAC system stops, it suddenly is almost like deafeningly silent because our auditory system had adapted to that persistent background noise. And so once our systems kind of regulate and, and, and adapt out the constant stimuli, it allows us to more readily perceive changes to those stimuli. And so the perceptual fading examples that you can find online are one example of that. But we think, for example, that the receptor systems on our electric fish that we study are generally also high pass, meaning that they tend to pass higher frequency stimuli and block lower frequency stimuli, much like um, I was saying there, you need change to be able to detect sensory signals. And so how do you distribute those sensory systems? But then how do you distribute um, um, how you distribute those sensory systems will depend on what dynamics you put on those receptors and vice versa. So there's a simultaneous design problem of both creating the temporal dynamics of the sensory receptors and distributing those temporal dynamics in an appropriate way to gain the most meaningful information for a particular task or set of tasks. So since we're close to the end, I have few questions and maybe the first one, maybe what are the key challenging or other question, maybe still hard to figure out. It's still, that's really challenging question or harder question. Well, I think I'll, I'll keep hearkening back to um, this, this interplay between gaining sensory information and using that sensory information for control as a kind of, right now it's kind of a niche field, the niche field of active sensing, right? But to me, it's like, one of the defining features of the animal kingdom is that animals do this, and yet it's kind of just like this tiny little subfield over in the corner called active sensing. So there's both a social challenge of getting more scientists to recognize, I think, that that's a really important broader field that sort of uh, affects the way you might think about, you know, animals aren't input-output devices. It's not like there's a stimulus coming in and an output goes out. We're constantly interacting with our environment in a closed loop. So um, whether we're trying to achieve a task that is just directly using our feedback to pick up a glass of water, or we're moving our sensory, our, our effectors in such a way to stimulate our receptors, starting to think about neuroscience more as a closed loop process in all aspects of um, uh, the nervous system and not just, you know, Motor control. Everybody knows motor control problems are sensory motor control problems, but uh, all aspects of, of uh, human and animal behavior evolve, involve modulating our sensory sensors to gain information um, and then moving our uh, effectors to achieve certain tasks and, and, and actually and doing so based on uh, uh, 
a history and a cognition and a memory of how that's played out in the past. So that that interplay between sensing, action, and cognition, cognitive biomechanics, I think, you know, it's a re- it's more like a, a field than a question. Um, but I would say that, you know, to me, I mean, I guess, again, I'm biased. This is the field that I'm that I'm in. But I feel like um, I'm in it because I think that's where the big challenges lie. What makes you fulfilled as it's fight? The most fulfilling experiences I have uh, in my professional life are with my students and colleagues, watching them um, make discoveries. Uh, I love it when a student comes in and has an idea that I should have had but didn't uh, or realizes something about her project that I didn't realize or couldn't have realized. Um, Those are the most kind of like those are the most fulfilling moments professionally is, you know, Uh, especially watching my students and, and postdocs and, and trainees um, uh, make discoveries that I couldn't have made uh, or didn't make. Um, and um, um, so I think that's that's where I get my greatest professional fulfillment. Uh, I, I don't know if you received any life-changing advice. Maybe stick to mind. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to be prepared. And I think right now our society is focused a lot on that, but I think that it's also really important to be adaptable and to, and to be willing to follow new directions that maybe take you off the course that you thought you had prepared for. And of course there's a challenge in doing that too much, but I think we often sort of set our sights on a long-term goal and that can make us quite blind to even more interesting possibilities or keep our mind from being open to things that we hadn't thought about before. And so I would say being really receptive, for example, especially at career transition points, like between your grad, uh, you know, high school and college, college and graduate school, whatever, between jobs, like really being receptive to new new directions as opposed to having you know, just an end goal in mind, which I think a lot of our like pedagogical training is often focused on, um, I think, you know, certainly has served me well. 